Please turn in your Bibles to two places, Psalm 30 and 1 Chronicles 21. We'll be looking at 1 Chronicles 21 first. Starting a new series today on Psalms that point the way. We'll be in Psalms for just a few weeks, uh, taking selected Psalms. One uh, that we've chosen today deals with trials. When you go through painful trials, I wonder if you're experiencing a trial of some sort. Maybe in your marriage, maybe a job, maybe your health, or whatever it may be. A trial. If you're not, you will. Believe me. Uh, David was experiencing a trial. Uh, this was a painful trial that he had brought on himself. Uh, Satan was instrumental in tempting David, but David yielded to the temptation and brought some pain into his life and into the life of the nation of uh, Israel. In uh, chapter 21... First Chronicles, Satan stood up against Israel and provoked David to number Israel. And David uh, wanted to know how many people he was king of, how many people in his kingdom. Joab has called in the commander of the army and told to number them, take a census. And Joab says, no, don't do that. Why do you want to know that? And David insists, yielding to temptation. Uh, in uh, verse 7, God was displeased with this thing, therefore he smote Israel. Uh, God has the prophet Gad offer David three things. He can fall in the hand of his enemies for three months. He can undergo a famine for three years, the nation. Or... Uh, he can undergo three days of plague at the hands of the Lord. And David says, let me fall into the hands of the Lord. Uh, he's merciful, not the hands of men. And so this plague strikes the nation, and thousands and thousands die. And then God, uh, uh, on the third day, God lets David see an angel. And this angel is standing at the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. And the angel, wherever he stretches out his sword, the plague goes. And he stretches out his sword toward Jerusalem. And David sees this. And uh, then uh, God says to the angel, no, it's enough. Put up your sword. And the prophet tells David to uh, purchase that piece of land where he saw this angel standing. And uh, to... Offer a sacrifice, build an altar there, offer a sacrifice to the Lord uh, for uh, God's mercy and in pleading with God. And so uh, he does that. He buys it and uh, he sets up an altar. Verse 18, the angel of the Lord commanded Gad to say to David that David should go up and set up an altar unto the Lord in the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. And then if you look at chapter 22 of First uh, Chronicles and verse 1, 
And David said, this is the house of the Lord God. This is the altar of the burnt offering for Israel. And David commanded to gather together the strangers. They went to the land of Israel and set masons to hew stones. Uh, hew wrought stones to build the house of God. This was where the temple was going to be built. That God would be worshipped no longer in a tent but in this temple. Solomon would build the temple, but David would prepare for it. And the first thing he does is buy this land, dedicate it, and then set masons to hew stones. Look at uh, Psalm 30 now. And uh, the... Heading of that song. It says, A psalm and song at the dedication of the house of David. Well, the house here is the temple that David is going to prepare, uh, that Solomon will build. So this psalm is written on this occasion of the plague and then God staying the plague. And David is telling us how he felt at this point as he pours out his heart to the Lord. And uh, verse 1, David's resolve to praise God for delivering him in his trial. I will extol thee, O Lord, for thou hast lifted me up and hast not made my foes to rejoice over me. I will extol you. His resolve, God, I will praise you for your mercy. You lifted me up. He feels like a man who fell in a pit. And there was no way out. And he pled with God for mercy, and God lifted him up. Uh, he uh, praises him uh, for protecting him from his enemies. He says, uh, "Has not made my foes to rejoice over me. How his enemies would have rejoiced if this plague had continued, and even if he had smitten David himself. And God's healing of him, not in the sense so much of him being sick, but any suffering we go through in uh, Scripture and the Lord... Uh, brings an end to it. It often speaks of being healed from disease. So it says, verse 2, O Lord my God, I cried unto thee, and thou hast healed me. You gave mercy here. And uh, verse 3, O Lord, thou hast brought up my soul from the grave. Thou hast kept me alive, that I should not go down to the pit. Uh, David could have expected to be smitten himself, since he brought all of this on Israel, in a sense. And uh, uh, his enemies would certainly have rejoiced at that. Now, you notice he uses the phrase in verse 2, O Lord, my God, my God. We talked about a covenant with God. When you're in a covenant relationship with God, he is your God. David knew that the Lord was his God. How do you enter that covenant relation? Uh, you enter it by repentance and faith, by turning from your sin. It's talking about initial turning to God. Initially becoming a true believer. You believe the claims of Jesus Christ today. We enter this same covenant, but through Christ. And we put our trust in him as the one who died for our sin. I was reading a new book that's out by uh, Max Lusato, uh, A Gentle Thunder. And he used the illustration of the thief on the cross. And he talks about... Uh, how the thief cries out and says, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus says, Today you'll be with me in paradise. You're forgiven. And uh, he says, Think of what's happening there, in effect. Uh, that that thief, and he represents all of us. All of us are dying thieves. That's why God had his son die between two thieves, to picture the whole human race. 
All of us are guilty in the eyes of God. And yet one thief is forgiven. He says, uh, the sins of the thief and all of us thieves leave him and go to Jesus. Uh, <clears throat> tiny specks at first, then large flakes, then finally layers of filth. Every evil thought, every vile deed, the thief's ravings, his cursings, his greed, his sin, all now covering Jesus. What, now, what nauseates God now covers his son. At the same instance, the purity of Jesus lifts and covers the dying thief. A sheet of radiance is wrapped around his soul. As the father robed the prodigal, so Christ robes the thief with himself, in a sense. Uh, that's what happens. His guilt is put on Jesus and the whole world, in a sense. And Christ's perfect righteousness is credited to him when he casts himself on Christ, when he believes the claims of Christ and puts himself on Christ's mercy. Lord, remember me. I trust you to save me. Now, it talks about, uh, Lusato talks about a friend who went down to Disney World and went to Cinderella's Castle and uh, was uh, looking there. And suddenly all these children in the Cinderella Castle as they were visiting Disney World, they rushed to one side of the castle, and he looked, and Cinderella had come in. She was perfect. Young lady, spotless skin, hair, just perfect, beautiful. And she's just inundated with children. And then this fellow who's watching, he just happened to turn and glance over to the other side of the room, and there's this little boy, deformed, uh, lame, ugly, and his, his brother who's with him, a little older brother. And he just thought, gosh, I know this little boy wishes he could be over there, but he, he can't get over there very easily, and then he'd feel awkward, and I sure wish Cinderella would see him and go over there, and, and she does. Cinderella saw him, and she began to work her way through the children, and finally breaks free and goes over and kneels down and kisses the little boy, and he's just stunned with that. Well, Lusado comments. He says, uh, Jesus did more than Cinderella. So much more. Jesus, Cinderella only gave a kiss. When she stood to leave, she took her beauty with her. The boy was still deformed. What if Cinderella had done what Jesus did? What if she'd assumed the boy's state? What if somehow uh, she had given him her beauty and taken on his disfigurement? That's what Jesus did. Took our sin guilt upon himself and gives us his beauty in terms of his perfect obedience credited to us. Well, when you do that, when you trust him and surrender to him as the one who did that, well, then uh, you're in a covenant relation. He is your God. And David is in that relation. And uh, David uh, says, my Lord, as he cries out to God in this trial that he's undergoing, and as he's now resolved to praise God for bringing him up out of this pit. Now, then he remonstrates with the fellow believers, join me in praising God. In uh, verse 4, sing unto the Lord, O ye saints of his, and give thanks at the remembrance of his holiness. Think of how holy God is, and he's your God, and you're related. Wouldn't he, what if God wasn't holy? Wouldn't that be terrible? Think of his attributes, his love, his mercy, his wholeness, his justice, his purity. All the things that make him what he is. Praise him with me for those things, says David. 
And uh, he says, uh, join me in praising him. Think of this. Verse 5. His anger endureth but a moment. In his favor is life. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy cometh in the morning. He compares the, the when God deals with his own here, uh, those in a covenant relationship, and he has to display his anger because we've done something wrong. He says it's just for a brief time. It was just three days there in David's situation. He's so glad it is over. And then he says his, his anger endures but a moment, but in his favor is life, or as the commentators say, his favor is for a lifetime. Uh, God delights in showing mercy. Now, to the impenitent, those who don't repent, those who are not in a covenant relation with him at all, why, his anger has to remain, in a sense, and ultimately be carried out in hell if they don't ever repent. And in our own case, once I'm in a covenant relation, if I continue in some wrong path, why, his his dealings with me in pain have to continue until I repent. Uh, he illustrates that he says, weeping may endure for a night. Weeping moves in as a temporary lodger. But joy comes and stays in the morning. You say, well, that sounds great, but my trial isn't like that. My trial hadn't been brief. My trial has gone on and on and on. This pain is here. It's moved in as a permanent resident. Hmm. Well, how permanent? It's not going to endure beyond this lifetime, whatever trial you're undergoing. Unless you're a non-Christian, then that just gets worse in the life to come. But in this lifetime, if you're a Christian, pain is still short, relatively speaking. Paul in Romans, I mean in the... Second Corinthians chapter four, seventeen, eighteen. Paul says this light affliction, which is but for a moment. Paul's affliction was light and momentary. Read Paul's life. This light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we look not at the things which are seen, for the things which are seen are temporal. But the things which are not seen are eternal. It seems light when you focus on the long-range benefit, says Paul. This pain is not going to go on beyond this life. And if it's working good in me, it's going to benefit me in the long run, then it's, it's light and momentary. Well, David uh, resolves to praise God for his mercy. He brought me up out of the pit that I'd gotten myself into, in a sense. Uh, his says to others, join me in praising him. What a merciful, wonderful God we have. And uh, then his recounting of what brought him into the pit and how he was delivered from it. In uh, verse 6, in my prosperity, I said, I shall never be moved. What's the worst thing can happen to you? Be prosperous and get proud and think you're somebody. Oh, what's happened to our nation? 
We've forgotten God. We've had it too easy. And look how proud we've become as a people. And how we flaunt God's laws. I noticed back during the Gulf War, all of a sudden everybody's praying. Do you notice that? Um, David said, in my prosperity I shall never be moved. He became self-confident and carnal security. Uh, So I wonder how many people in my kingdom... Remember Nebuchadnezzar said, Is this not great Babylon which I built for the glory of my power? David sounded a little bit like that, didn't he? Now, I shall never be moved. (laughs) I'm so strong. But uh, God said, No, that's not the way it works, David. Verse 7. Lord, by... Thy favor thou hast made my mountain to stand strong. You made me strong. I understand that now. And thou didst hide thy face, and I was troubled. I was doing well because you had blessed. And when I became proud, you frowned and hid your face, and I was troubled. Uh, Now, such frowns, such rebukes are really done in love. Hebrews 12, 5. Whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you with sons. What son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? God has to chasten his children because he loves them. He can't let us go on in sin. Uh, He lets the world go on sin. Because ultimately, their sin is going to be dealt with in an awful way. But his own children, he can't let them go down that path. That path leads in the wrong direction. You can't let your children just go on and do their own thing. God can't let his. Hebrews uh, chapter 12 uh, goes on to say uh, that uh, our fathers, our human fathers, disciplined us for a time... A little while, as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. He's going to make us holy. Now, no discipline seems seems pleasant at the time. It's painful. Uh, Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it, those who respond to that discipline. Now, the trial that you're undergoing... Whatever it is, economic, physical, God has lots of ways that he chastens. Your trial may not be God's chastening. may not be that at all. Next week we're going to talk about when you do right and yet you suffer terribly. But your trial may be God's chastening you. That's what David's was. Uh, And... uh, If so, the solution, of course, here, he tells us how he was delivered. Verse 8, he says, I cried unto thee, O Lord, and unto the Lord I made supplication. Um, That's the true remedy. Humble yourself. Get on your knees. Pray. Confess your sin. In uh, that First Chronicles passage, Uh, David said unto God, I have sinned greatly because I have done this thing. 
And now I beseech thee, do away with the iniquity of thy servant, for I have done very foolishly. You said that to God? Um, <clears throat> David uh, goes on here and says, God, what profit is there in my death if you let me die in the middle of this thing? Uh, verse 9. What profit is there in my blood when I go down to the pit? Shall the dust praise thee? Shall it declare thy truth? I can't witness for you if I'm dead. Uh, hear, O Lord, and have mercy upon me. Lord, be thou my helper. That's what to do when you go through a trial. Cry out. And say, Lord, search me. Try me. See if there be any wicked way. Lord, if there's some reason that this has come into my life, show me. I'm listening. You may not need to pray that way. You may already know. Right? You may say, yeah, I know why this has happened. I know exactly why it's happened. Uh, but maybe, it may not be that, but it may be that. So you have to search. You have to be open to God. And you have to repent. Uh, there's a new book out by uh, John White, who's the uh, Christian psychiatrist up in Canada. It's called uh, Changing on the Inside. And uh, he says, going back to God. That's how C.S. Lewis defines repentance. It's simply a description of what going back to him is like. If you ask God to take you back without it, uh, you're really asking him to let you go back without going back. can't be done. A couple of weeks ago out in the lobby, a young lady came up to me, tears coming down her face. She said, I want to come home. She meant here, but she meant to God. That's what David did. That's what we've got to do. Uh, John White says, that's not easy. It's the hardest thing any of us will ever have to do in life is start on that homeward journey. Our stubbornness and pride rise up. The habit of proud independence is hard to break. Uh, he illustrates it with... Uh, Jean Valjean in Les Miserables. Uh, you remember the play, and Jean Valjean had been in prison for 19 years for stealing a loaf of bread to feed his sister's hungry children. He gets out of prison, he's bitter at the world, and uh, a bishop, friendly bishop, lets him stay in his house overnight, and he steals silver plate from the bishop. And he's caught by the police, and they bring him to the bishop, say, Bishop, he's got your silver plate, and the bishop kind of sizes the situation up. And he says, I gave them to him. He says, you forgot the candlesticks I gave you. Here, take these. Jean Valjean can't believe it. And the next day, he drops to his knees in repentance. His knees buckled under him as if an invisible power overwhelmed him at a blow. And the weight of his bad conscience, he felt, ex he felt exhausted upon a great stone. His hands clenched in his hair. His face on his knees exclaimed, What a wretch I am. Then his heart swelled and he burst in tears. The first time he'd wept in 19 years. And while he wept, the light grew brighter and brighter in his mind. An extraordinary light. A light transporting and terrible. He's a changed man. Uh, repentance. Whether it's initial repentance or whether it's this repentance in the covenant. That's, that's the heart of it. Going home. Going back. Now, uh, God gives us a wake-up call sometimes. Have you had a wake-up call? 
David rejoices over God's answer. Verse 11. Thou hast turned for me my mourning into dancing. Thou hast put off my sackcloth and girded me with gladness. He literally had been wearing sackcloth, he and the elders. And just think of the tremendous relief he has when God says to that angel, Sheathe your sword. (laughs) David's mourning is turned into joy. Ah, what God had done. Verse 12. To the end that my soul and my glory may sing praise to thee and not be silent. O Lord my God, I will give thanks unto thee forever. Oh, the joy of this thing. The relief when God has reversed it. What about your trial and your response to it? Uh, Is your trial past or passing? Do what David did and resolve to praise God and others join in. Reflect on His mercy. Praise Him for it. Even if the trial is still going on. uh, You can praise Him for what He's already done in life just in bringing you to Him. Uh, Great hymn. Praise my soul, the King of heaven. To His feet thy tribute bring. Ransom, healed, restored, forgiven. Who like me, his praise should sing. If the trial is continuing, God delights in showing mercy, but we've got to seek it, just like David sought mercy here on his knees. Seek it supremely, seek it humbly, earnestly, confidently, not doubting that God delights in showing mercy. Maybe you're here and you're not a Christian. Pain is God's megaphone to raise the dead, said C.S. Lewis. Jesus wept over Jerusalem because Jerusalem wouldn't turn to God. Jesus wept over their fate. How much better that we weep and that we humble ourselves as David did. You're undergoing a trial. It could be chastening. Here's the solution. Let's pray. As our hearts are bowed, uh, have you had a wake-up call? Has it turned you to God? Have you done as David did here and sought His mercy? Humble yourself? Uh, That's the solution. If it's discipline, if it's chastening, If you're not a Christian, what will it take for God to get your attention? How long will he be patient? How foolish not to turn to him and do as the dying thief. Cast yourself on Jesus' mercy. Believe his claim. Ask him to exchange his beauty for your sin. Pray in your heart like this. Lord Jesus, I'm that dying thief. The Lord, uh, kiss me as Cinderella did. Only do more than kiss. Change me. Let my guilt be on you and your beauty on me. Forgive me. Come and live in me. I purpose to obey you. Amen.